Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Ramble. I have my dear cousin and friend, Ryan Primus, with me today. And I have wanted to have Ryan on the show for quite some time because I have wanted to talk about something that some people might find controversial, other people might not. It's hunting, rewilding, living off the land. And Ryan does this. Ryan is also a developer. He is, well, Ryan, you know what? Why don't you just bio yourself to the audience today? Well, okay. So I would probably classify myself as a bit of a workaholic. Been doing a lot of houses for a lot of years. So it's like uh, not building, but renovations, flipping houses and things like that is really what's given me my start uh, to put me in a financial situation to spend a little bit more time doing what I want to do, which is being in the bush and getting out and hunting and fishing and that kind of stuff. Which which we're going to talk about. I actually wanted to talk about how you built your career as an entrepreneur. But why don't you give everybody a little backstory as to your life growing up in nature. You've lived in a yurt, you know. Teepee. Teepee. Teepee, not a yurt, yeah. Is a yurt like a bougie teepee or is it? The it's same kind of difference. like a circle with like a roof on it, whereas the teepee is like the what what you think about from a oh, teepee, with the three, which with is the poles. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. there's going to be more than three of those, anyways. But yeah, that was uh, my dad's idea, and he did that for a short period of time alongside Brian and Auntie Diane and Elias and those guys. So they kind of did that at the same time. So Brian and my dad were more the wild men growing up. Even out of my dad's whole family, a lot of his brothers, they were the ones who selected that they were going to do like, you know, career focus, stable, buy the house. And my dad was just like, oh, this looks fun. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to go over there and I want to spend time in the bush. And, and, and so that's what dad was like. You know, we used to live out west of Williams Lake. Um, like, honestly... I might have been zero to one oh, you at were the that time, time. Okay. that they were doing this, but it was like my dad said their nearest neighbors were 10 miles away. They had no power. They didn't really have like anything. It was like there was a creek and my dad was working at a mill, just a small local mill a few kilometers away. And my mom just stayed at home looking after my brother. And so dad, I definitely got my sense of adventure from my dad. Uh, he was always dragging us into those sorts of things. Which Did he like it or did he just, was it like a rebellion? No, no, he loved it. He loved it. Uh, you know, if you think about me and how I always want to be out in the bush, I really think that that was my dad. Did your mom like it? <clears throat> no. She didn't? No, she struggled for years. My dad and her got married. She was like 20 years old and he was just like, this is what I'm doing and you're coming with me. And they're not together anymore. Mm -hmm. I think <laughs> there, there was a little bit of uh, insensitivity there on my dad's part that, you know, he recognizes and he should have obviously, you know, it just, it, it never entered into his thought process. He just was living his best life, you know? So that, that's what he, he did. Like I grew up moving a lot 
we moved and lived in a lot of different houses, just kind of whatever grabbed my dad's attention. You know, we, he always liked the hobby farm type thing. Like we, we raised turkeys, uh, you know, laying hens, meat chickens, like meat birds. We had rabbits. Um, oh, all for food or pigs? Like- yep, all for ourselves. We, usually we'd sell like half of what we raised to kind of pay for the whole process. We had a huge garden growing up. Always had a really big garden, lots and lots of like awesome vegetables. So, you know, all I'm very familiar with all that stuff. Like, when you were growing up, were you actively involved in the maintenance of this hobby farm that was a lifestyle because it, it gave you your nu- nutrients as a family? Yeah. At the time, I just felt like I was free labor, you know, like my dad was like, hey, you got to go water the animals. And it was like, our house was not that close to the barn. And I remember being 12 years old and filling up five gallon buckets of water at the house and packing them like over to the barn and like hating it. (laughs) Yeah. And now that, now that you look back at it, do you, do you think, ah, this would be something that I should be doing with my kids? You know, you're, you're in the bush and we can get to that. But like, I guess what I'm saying is looking back, do you think it was, a very good way to raise kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm a little bit old school in that I look at, like, basically everybody in the world to the, today attached to their cell phones, and I'm just so happy that we're raising our kids in the country where we just are like, go play in the mud, go get dirty, you know, go play by the creek, go do whatever. Like, we're not going to let you grow up with your face attached to some kind of an electronic device, which is, of course, the way, you know, I was born early 80s and we didn't have any of that stuff anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking back, I like the person that I became as a result of it. And that's kind of what I'm hoping for my kids. The the values that you have, as in the person you came, the values of hard work, the values of being able to be uncomfortable and push through that type of stuff? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like we were part of the household. So doing the work was just part of life. It wasn't even like, oh, here, earn your allowance. You know, it wasn't, it was like, no, you live here. You're going to eat this food, go out and do some work. So I learned how to work hard as a kid. I hated it. I was like, did not want to work hard as a kid, which would surprise a lot of people knowing me now what my work ethic is but i just i want to instill all of that with the kids and especially having a really good understanding of where your food is coming from the work that goes into it how they were raised and slaughtered and processed um but also like the super high quality food of all of that stuff like you just take it for granted as a kid and then looking back now it's like oh man we ate so good you're built like a brick shithouse and are literally never sick so I don't know. I, you can't like necessarily tie t- both together, or can you? Or uh, do you? If you would, if you would ask my dad, he would say a hundred percent. There's a correlation. He well, said he's built growing, like a brick shithouse yeah, too. Like, but like growing up, he said we were never sick, mm-hmm. and all of our friends were always sick. And he thinks it's because we ate like super healthy. You know, lived out in the country, breathed good clean air, not that downtown Prince George air <laughs> that's Which got smells all the, like a sawmill. Yeah, all the pulp mill, oh, pulp not mill, the sawmill. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, but I mean, for myself, I I don't really aspire to have a hobby farm. Like, Mm. romantically, yeah, I could build the chicken coops. You you know, the idea of it is like just raising just enough and keep it manageable for our consumption. But I'm not delusional as to the amount of work and commitment that it takes. It's like you can't, like you, I couldn't even go out on a week-long hunting trip because I got to be there to look after the animals. Of course, when the kids get older and of course Dana can help out, but that's also a lot of work. And it's like... 
I'd rather just connect with people that are doing that so I can be one of the people that are financially supporting them. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's interesting too because like we have a hobby farm yeah. and it's more work than I'd like. Mm-hmm. And I really, I love that we get to go out in the morning, get fresh eggs and use the chicken shit as manure for the vegetables that we grow and we don't anywhere near get enough. For the amount of work that it is, we are not like sustaining ourselves through the winter with that and so you know that there's another level and to uh, to to hit that level i think is a very different lifestyle commitment than we are currently prepared to do yeah but back to life up the north so just context for the audience we're talking when ryan mentions williams lake when ryan mentions outside prince george these are like if you're familiar with british columbia canada five hours and nine hours north of vancouver so you're way up in the north and you're outside of the, the even the remotely small civilizations that, you know, when you were growing up, those towns are really small. And you also chose, or your parents also chose, I should say, to homeschool you. Is that correct? For a period of time. Yeah, a pretty good period of time. We went, I went from kindergarten up to grade seven. Uh, my brother is two years older, my sister two years younger. So she started kindergarten, went to grade five. My brother started around grade two and went to grade nine. Have no regrets around that at all. I don't think that we turned out overly weird. You'd have to ask other people about that. Um, my own opinion doesn't really count. But the freedom that it gave us too, because again, like, you know, just being able to pick up and go and do the trips that we wanted to do and and even when we went to school it was like if my dad wanted to take us on a hunting trip he just pulled us out for a week and we went and did it it wasn't like oh we can't miss school and it's like my dad was always had the philosophy like no this is life this is actually going to be more educational than what you're gonna mm-hmm. go through like what you're gonna miss in a week right so we used to go up to Dees Lake and you know go moose hunting and do things like that even farther north and there's and there's like a practical education that you're speaking of here because some people would say, well, it, to, again, for context, my wife homeschools and we do it for the for one of many reasons is to be able to travel freely and just take the schoolwork with us. I hated high school. I was bullied and I hated the routine of having to go to it. And I use very little of what I learned. And I don't believe that we, we shouldn't learn how to learn, learn very practical fundamental things but then in replacement of those practical fundamental things that we learn in school there's a lot of practical fundamental things that don't there's no time for learning how to like you said learning how to make your own food grow your own food bring your own food to the table and so on and so forth so where do you stand on it today like with your kids how are you wanting them to grow up and learn like you did, like you have, or do you see it differently now? Well, so here we go with my maybe slightly more controversial thoughts on like the whole education system and all those sorts of things. Of course, I think people need to learn how to read and write Mm -hmm. and do basic math. Mm -hmm. High school was not overly memorable for me. I wasn't popular, you know, all of that kind of stuff. A little bit of bullying my way and stuff like that. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't like, oh, high school was the best years of my life. But being growing up and choosing my own friends and people that I associate with and I get to choose my own path, I always felt so much more free after graduation and just like, you know, everybody was like, oh, wait till you go to work. And I'm like, "Eh, whatever, I like work. Like, I like what I do. Now, going back to the education aspect, I feel like there are so many important things that were either not taught in school at all or were actually like electives 
and they should have been mandatory courses. I mean, like you're, you're talking about like sewing, you, you know, you were talking about foods class, you know, like finances. Mm. They don't even teach you basic finances in school. And to me, that actually blows my mind because it, to me, it would be like one of the most important things that a person could actually learn about is like how to handle money how cash flow works you know it's like passive income versus like spending within your means and it's like you know those are things that i'm going to teach my children anyways i don't really think mm-hmm. that they're going to gain a ton about the real world based off of what they're going to learn in school mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of social aspects that are important. You know, I think it's great for them to be in sports and make friends and learn how to interact with other children. And then, of course, there's like all of your basic stuff. But I mean, history, yeah. you know, things like that. Sure, yeah, it's good. But I, I, I don't, I don't put a ton of weight on practical use from like your high school education to like what you're doing in the world. And and in fact, I think that it wires your brain to think in a way that mine doesn't work. And I had to rewire my brain through reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich, and then just realizing that you can be an entrepreneur and you take this path that realistically it's it's more taught, do this, you know, go to college, get your education, and then go get a job for mm-hmm. somebody. And then it's kind of like, well, no, there's a little bit more out there than that. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn how to believe that choose that for yourself and it's like go outside of the norm and i mean realistically it's like i've been doing what most people consider crazy for the last 15 years and if it all fell apart i'd go get a job tomorrow Mm -hmm. and i'm i've lost nothing yeah because you you learned not to be reliant on a system Mm -hmm. on the system of and and some people are wired that way like some people are wired that they need and want and thrive in a very structured environment but I've always held the belief that that structured environment is, is delusional. That any structure that we have could be torn down and or you could lose your job or, or you could lose your ability to do that job. As a prime example, it's like I run my own company and I have one full-time employee and I work with a ton of sub-trades. My employee needs three months worth of pay stubs to go to the bank and get a loan for a mortgage. They want two years of financials from me to do the same thing. It's as if he's more stable. Oh, you've got three months pay stubs? Yeah, you're working a solid job. Here's your money. And I'm like, if it goes slow at work, he's getting laid off before I am. So why are, like, it, it just, it's completely <laughs> illogical. It's like, it, it, it doesn't make sense. I don't know? I don't know. I mean, my, my, my eldest is 10, so we're not at the finances part, but I... Well, actually, we, we teach it to her, but I don't know if in school any of that's changed because we didn't learn much outside of the basics, you, you know, and, and the basics being, like you said, math, et cetera, which, yes, very important. History, I'm not, I, I think it's important to understand your history so you don't repeat it. I'm not, under, I'm not certain the history that we learned in high school was all that factual <laughs> based on what's happening in our country today. And anyway, it's uh, it's one of those things where, again, I, I lost my train of thought a little bit, but it's one of those things where I'm looking at what are the what are the ways that we can bring up children in this world today, here in Canada, elsewhere, where they're ready for anything. And I think one of those ways is to help them learn how to rewild. I'm not saying they got to be, you know, Steve Renella or 
go live off the land like Grizzly Adams. If Grizzly Adams lived off the <laughs> land, I don't know. But I'm saying that I think that they need to be closer to that. And I don't know why. I don't have a practical reason for it. It's not like some conspiracy, like the world's going to fall apart and we need to live off the land. It feels instinctual. I think it's important. Like, at least teach children about it and then allow them to go whatever way they want mm -hmm. afterwards. Um, for me, I'm always connected to the wilderness. It's when I'm the happiest, like mm -hmm. 100%. I just need to spend more time outside, like doing anything outside, whether it's hunting or fishing or hiking or just looking up at the clouds, all of those kinds of things just like bring me the most peace. So I, I think it's important to fill in a lot of gaps and really connecting people like you know, you just, you can look at everything in our world today. Like, where does your clothes come from? You know, where does your food come from? You know, we kind of already touched on that. A lot of people are completely disconnected. You just don't think about it. You mm -hmm. literally don't think about it. And it's mm -hmm. not even like a willful ignorance. It's like, you just, that's how you were born from the, like you were born, raised into a system and you just, you go to McDonald's and you get a cheeseburger, not even correlating that patty with an animal. So it's like, you know, the more. Can you correlate it with an animal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Those what's in a in a Big Mac. Yeah, I so. think that's I think that's that point is really valid. It's about gratitude, mm. and that's what I've learned. So Ryan and I have been re, Ryan has been rewilding me, and we've been doing it as part of a of a TV show that we want to shoot called Finding Nora, which is about learning how to hunt and fish and forage and grow vegetables and can vegetables and oyster and 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 harvest an animal. And there's just this next level of appreciation for when that piece of meat, that protein hits the plate, what it took from suffering in the bush, not even, even before that, to planning where you're going to go, to suffering into the bush, to carrying the thing out of the bush. Which and you're is, talking about us suffering in the bush, not the animal. Yes, yeah. that's true. <laughs> anyway, point being is, is gratitude. And I think that that's what you're hitting on is, is a gratitude and, and respect. And, and, and p part of the reason why we're so unbalanced in our world is because we've lost sight of that. Mm -hmm. It all just magically appears, but it doesn't. And that's why, you know, like... Even, you know, I get I get certain people are always like, oh, hey, can you give me some of that meat? Can you give me some of this and some of that? And it's like, you know, sometimes I'm kind of like, I don't have a problem with sharing it with people and especially people that like really appreciate it. Like if, if there's people that are kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, it was, it's like, okay, you know what? You don't need my elk steak. If you really don't care about it that much, I will share it with somebody who like really mm. appreciates it. And if, if it's neither here nor there, if, if you're eating beef, then just go buy a beef steak. But it's like, for me, it's, it's like, even when people are like, they offer to like buy it off of me, which of course I can't sell the wild game or they're like, oh, I want to compensate you for like the processing costs and stuff like that. To me, it's more like you can't put a price on it because you have to suffer and you have to work so damn hard to get it to, into your freezer that it's like, it's not replaceable. Mm -hmm. Like there's one way for you to get that game and that is to go out into the bush and get it. Mm -hmm. So I hold that very dear to my heart and my deep freeze. <laughs> and so I do share, of course, and I have like an abundance right now. We had a really good harvest last year and the year before that, I, I'm on a like a 15 year roll right now. Like, honestly, I haven't bought beef in like 15 years, but it's like, I 
there, there's just a different level of like understanding and appreciation for having wild game and the health benefits of that versus what was raised on a farm. So it's like, I think that when, when you understand what it takes, it's so clean, it's so clean. And, and yeah, you just, it, it, it's just different. There's, there's always going to be a riff between vegans and hunters. But there's definitely a middle ground, and I'm noticing that, um, and in that middle ground, it's the people who aren't vegetarian, vegan, who are starting to express more interest in hunting. And just knowing that industrial farming is so sick, in many cases, in, in most cases, it's sick maybe doesn't even begin to describe how bad it is that there there's this curiosity that's come into their minds how okay well how do i get into that so maybe you can explain two things you can explain just like the the lure and the process of hunting as if you were talking to a, a beginner who wanted to get in but also the conservation and the balance that exists inside it for someone who completely opposes it. Do you think you can tackle those two? Well, the first part is hard for me because I was born into that. So it's hard for me to look from the outside and think, how does a person who's not familiar with it get into it and tackle like actually getting out and going hunting? I mean, let's look at you, for instance. You know, it's like I think of you and and your dad, you know, as people like your dad's been basically a vegetarian for his far back as I can possibly remember. But he's never turned down meat when I offer it to him from my table because he knows where it came from and he knows that it's clean and he knows that it's healthy. And there are people like you as well, like, you know, you were vegan for a while, you know, up until a couple of years ago, Jana was wishing um, unsuccessful hunts on us because she didn't want an animal to die. Um, And now she's- That's that's a true story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now she's celebrating our success because it's like you guys were really in a search for like, you want to know where your meat came from and you want to know how that animal lived and how it died and how it was treated. Um, and I think that's probably a case for a lot of people, especially as people are becoming more aware of, you know, the, the industry of meat production. So, you know, how do you get somebody into that? You know, it's like, I, 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 I struggle to answer that because if I look at you, what did you do? You called you me, <laughs> right? So th- that would be the easiest thing. Now, of course, Anybody who's a hunter is going to watch this and think like, okay, but your hunters are super protective of their hunting locations, right? So it's like there can be an, a, a certain amount of like, I'm going to point you in the right direction. So if you know somebody, that would be like the first thing. Just, hey, how did you get into this? What did you do? It's like, you know, you, you, you go up north into the Chetwind area and then you'll see fences and it doesn't all mean private land. There's like crown lease. There's, you know, like community pasture. And these are like, you're allowed to hunt on those areas. You just need to know what's going on and all of that is designed as i've learned as part of the conservation of the wildlife population predator to prey the smallest animal to the biggest in the province in the nation i imagine the united states is something very similar that has done an a phenomenal job at not only managing but reintroducing and growing populations that were endangered and or not where they should be uh, and bringing animals back into to new areas. As I understand it, you know, sp- specifically with bears, but with elsewhere with, with goats, we have the healthiest population in the world in British Columbia. That is due to the conservation 
efforts, which is what you're talking about when you're talking about areas and what you're allowed to hunt, hunt and all that daunting stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's a blessing. And I don't think people realize you can. It's not about this part is not about the ethics of whether you kill an animal or not. That's a diff, totally different thing. This is to say that they do an incredible job with conservation and their aspects of conservation that actually have to do with the management of the population via the hunting of that animal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it, you know, I mean, now you're getting into an area where it just depends on who you ask, whether they think that there's a phenomenal job being done or not and trying to keep political, political opinion and popular opinion out of the equation. You know, you want to touch on a nerve. Let's talk about the grizzly hunts that they took away a few years ago. You know, oh, we're going to get rid of that. And <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, you go up to Prince George and you want to talk and everybody's going to say it's because all of those Vancouver hippies that don't want people shooting grizzly bears are all putting pressure on the politicians. And then they say, okay, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to do what you want. No more grizzly bears hunt, hunt, no more grizzly bear hunts. And I'm telling you, the grizzly bear population is out of control. It is like they have no predators other than humans. And I mean, like, I see everybody I talk to seeing grizzlies in the bush like you can't believe, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so why are you, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to say, oh, that the move to get rid of that was a, a politically driven move, mm-hmm. not a factual based, like we can sustain these numbers. Now, you want to talk to me about grizzly bear hunting. I don't eat a grizzly bear, so I'm not really the kind of person that's going to pursue what I guess you could consider a trophy animal. But also, animals do need to be managed in ways of preservation as well as reduction. Mm-hmm. And I just just to clarify what I was saying, which may not you know, change that, that I, I was wrong, is I only meant that populations, as I understand it, are quite healthy here. Yeah. As um, in, there's lots, of, there's lots of animals and there's more animals than there used to be. British Columbia is pretty good mm-hmm. for hunting variety as well as populations. You know, I read in like, uh, I think it was a Canadian hunting magazine a few years ago that British Columbia has some of the best, like the best moose population, um, you know, in all of Canada, you and, know, probably and North America, if I'm going to take a stab at it. And, you know, we do have a lot of goats and, you know, tons of elk and black bears and stuff like that. It's just like. And wolves. Again, yeah. not that you eat wolves, but, you know. No, but the wolves are on a very big upswing right now, and they're having a pretty bad, you know, effect on the caribou and stuff now. And, and the alternative is, you know, so, so nature runs its own course, and the predators kill off all the prey, the predators starve, they kill themselves off via starvation and or killing each other, and then the, you know, the prey, air quotes, comes back and that's the natural cycle if there's not human intervention managing that Mm -hmm. and I will just add that you know when you said something about the folks in Prince George versus the folks in in uh, Vancouver you know I'm I'm of both worlds in a way and I was when we were up in Dawson Creek last year and we were buying a rifle for my for me for the first time and I remember we were sitting down with the gunsmith this famous uh, gunsmith outfitter uh, called Coralanes, and um, he was talking about how he grew up with guns. Like, they were a tool for food. There was never any... Uh, you didn't think about a gun in a negative way. It wasn't... It didn't have the baggage of bias and or, 
you know, how the media might or you know, the government might portray these things as to kill everybody. It was a tool for food. And therein lie, I, I imagine it was the same for you if I recall you said that was exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to that riff. It's, it, it's not even in their mind that this, this thing is a weapon. Yet, nine hours, 10 hours, 12 hours south, it's a weapon. It's, you're a criminal, it's a dirty secret, you shouldn't have it. And we're at these odds. You know, I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just, well, it's playing into what you're <clears throat> saying about every aspect of it has two very distinct opinions at the very least. I think bridging the gap in that one just really has a lot to do with education. And really, I mean, maybe that's kind of like, you know, where finding nowhere comes in is like helping people bridge the gap and helping you kind of really understand what that means to other people and what they use it for, you know? And and that's the important thing. It's like, you know, it's just being raised a certain way and you just get raised thinking a different way. So people think differently. Well, we all have to live together. Mm-hmm. So going back to the getting into the hunting side of it, I, I guess what I'm driving at is, is, is physicality. I'm driving at understanding the wilderness and the environment of which you were hunting in a way that enables you to successfully leave after the hunt, mm-hmm. not having, you know, got lost and died. How does, how does someone step into that, especially if they've limited experience with it? I would say slowly, mm-hmm. you know, if I was, you know, somebody like my sister was just saying like a neighbor of theirs, they live in Nanus Bay. There's lots of deer on Vancouver Island and she was like, oh, our friend Damien wants, he wanted to get into hunting. So he like got his hunting license and went up into the forest behind their place and he harvested a deer. And I'm like, that's pretty safe. You know, if you want to get into it, find, start with animals that are easy to find in locations that aren't too extreme, you know, and then you just kind of wet your feet. So I think that's a fantastic way to do it. You know, look for deer, look for black bears. You know, there's lots of animals down here in the lower mainland. You don't have to go after a big bull moose or certainly not a mountain goat or a big horn sheep. Um, and then you'll just learn bits mm-hmm. and pieces as you go along. And you're going to run into people. You're going to meet people and then you're going to have conversations and you're going to get introduced to new ideas. You know, a lot of guys are going to be pretty tight lipped on specific locations, but they'll, they'll give you general ideas. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, go, go poke around this area. You know, you're probably on the fringe of a good spot, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So that's, and then, and then, and then you have to start exploring. And that's what I did as a veteran hunter. You know, I've hunted bull moose for almost 20 years now exclusively. And then five years ago, six years ago, a buddy of mine got me into elk and deer. And, you know, I went on a, not even an intentional goat hunt with my uncle. We were up in an area and he was like, oh, I have a tag for this area. And he thought the tag was expired and it wasn't. And we spotted goats. And then we were like, let's go up this mountain. And we went up the mountain and, and I was like, whoa, this is cool. Mm-hmm. I'm doing that again. And drew my tag the next year and I went up and you were with me and we got a goat. And then it was just like exploring and then building that confidence. Once you know you're competent, you're not going to die in the bush. Now it's just kind of like, hey, I think we should go here. And you know, Google Earth, man, like 
you can see so much stuff with that and figure it out. And I mean, even where we went into two years ago, like it was insane, like super hard hunting. Boy, did I ever misread those maps. It was like, oh, those are like actually way too steep to shoot an animal on. So let's rethink that plan. But it's all about putting time in. And that's what we did. You know, we spent five days up in the bush and it's like we didn't really get in in any good hunting, but we learned something and I'm going to go back and you're going to come with me. And we're going to learn more about that area. That's and where, that's, that's just, it's, it's intimidating, but you have to put time. Like, I mean, there's, there's a thing, time in the field. Mm-hmm. Everybody that I know, that's why they're so tight-lipped about their spot, because they put hours and hours and hours of walking through the bush and exploring and driving and finding things. You put in that much work, you tell this guy, he tells somebody, he tells somebody, next thing, there goes your spot, go find another place. Mm-hmm. It's too much work and effort to go into that, that you want that to be exploited. So, you know, when you when you find something that works for you, you deserve it. And, and you either have to be wealthy enough that you could take significant amounts of time to to do this in a, in some kind of a sustainable way where it's your lifestyle it's it's not so conducive unless it literally is your lifestyle and you're trading for your food and you're you're eating all your own food and you're spending all your time but that's the because otherwise again it just takes too much time to be successful to get enough meat I don't even have that much time. Mm. There's good mule deer hunting close to my house. I have trail cams. I have no time Mm. running my business, working on the house. I stick with what I know for now. And when I get more time, I'm going to spend more time. I know there's animals around. I know there's good spots to be had. I just don't even have the time to go look for them. And I live right there. Like I could drive 20 minutes from my house and I'm in good hunting for a lot of different species. The, The other thing that I think is very interesting about this hunting rewilding lifestyle is that so the first time or the first couple of times you took me out I'm a fit person I was a, I was a national level long distance runner in our country represented Canada I work out religiously and I got my ass kicked up the mountain because there's no there's no trail I got my ass kicked hauling you know a successful hunt hauling the meat through uneven terrain I got my ass kicked sleeping on the ground. And here you are, you know, you're obviously, you're still a fit person, but there was another degree. And and where am I going with this? It wasn't just the physicality that, that you possessed that impressed me and pissed me off at the same time. It was your ability to be completely uncomfortable. Oh, we are not gonna make it back to camp. Let's just sleep on the side of this mountain. I'm like, what? You know, oh, we're walking back in the pitch black in Devil's Club up to our eyeballs. No big deal. I'm not worried. And then the more of that I tried to take on, the the easier a lot of life got by alert, like by just dealing with the hardship of a hunt. And 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 I guess where where where's the question? What is your philosophy on life? Is this part of it this putting yourself in these places to make the rest of it easy like how do you take these lessons how do i take those lessons and And apply them to life to your to your life yeah or do you not have is it just were those just lessons that i had and experiences that i had and you you didn't really think anything of it i didn't think that much of it i knew i wasn't gonna die 
So outside of that, I wasn't concerned, you know? It's like, I know where the truck is. I know where the tent is. Yeah, it's going to make for like a long, terribly uncomfortable evening. But once you know you're not going to die, just get over it, you know? And I know that you really got to make me feel that bad. Yeah, because you're freaked out about bears, right? And I just, I still remember if only we could have caught caught that on film it was like we were walking through that six foot tall devil's club in the middle of the night in between that and jumping back into the creek to like get out of the devil's club you were starting to lose your shit a little bit oh at what point in time do we set up a tent i'm like literally never am i going to set up a tent in this stuff when i know my truck is right over there i'll keep going for four more hours if i have to i'm not spending the night here and you know it was like you just I don't, I don't know. I guess it was me just telling you what's going to happen and what's not. That it was just mm. like, you didn't have a choice. If you had a choice, you might've made different choices than me. But I mean, I wasn't stopping and I know you weren't going to stop if I wasn't. <laughs> so. No, I was not going to stop. Why, why aren't you afraid of bears? Ah, uh, cause I'm stupid. No, I don't know. It's like, I, in all likelihood, I've spent so much time in the bush. I've really had, I actually have had negative encounters with bears that really make me reevaluate my comfort level i i I do elaborate do elaborate (laughs) what you're comfortable sharing many many years ago i think it was 2010 my cousin and i we were we were moose hunting in an undisclosed location and um we actually we thought we heard a moose in the bush and we had a big bull draw and i sent him into the bush to try and get in behind this animal animal and flush it out to the river well it turns out that it was actually a grizzly bear and after trying to do this like three times, we were both in the canoe, 18 inches of water. And all of a sudden out of the bush, 80 yards in front of us comes this, well, at first thought I was like, oh, it's a moose right on. And then I was like, oh no, wait, that's a bear. Oh, it's a grizzly bear. Oh, that's interesting. Let's enjoy this. And then it just like, he looked like a dick. <laughs> like you just looked at this bear and it was like, he was not having any of it and he just was like looking at us out the corner of his eye as soon as he got into the river he swam upstream till he hit the shallows and he full blown charged us and we're like yelling and hollering out of the canoe and this and that and my cousin adam is just like he's not fond of bears he has a different fear of bears that i think would i would place on your level and he just i look at him and he's like fucking shoot it (laughs) and i was like okay and that's what i did and that was, yeah, 2010. And, um, you know, I really honestly believe that that bear was in the canoe inside of two seconds if we didn't shoot it. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that's weird. Like, you know, I haven't had to do that before. And then, you know, half hour later, I shot a moose and he was pissed off because I was shooting everything. But, um, you know, it was like, and then in more recent years, we actually had a sow grizz and a cub come into our hunting camp and pull half a moose off of our meat poles. And um, luckily, we only lost one quarter out of the two that they tried to drag away. We recovered one, um, but they came back the next night, but we were kind of ready for that. And it was just a really good reminder because I always want to bring my kids out into the bush and do this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, man, there's a lot of grizzlies out here. Like, I really have to remember it's all different when I got a little human being that I'm looking after as well. As in me. As in you, yes. You are like that infant (laughs) child by my side, nervously darting your gaze around the meadow, afraid of what might come out, and I'm just excited about what might come out. But, yeah, (laughs) no, it's it's just, it's good to remember. Like, and I'm still not really that terrified. Like, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and I'm not going to live my life worrying about whether it's going to happen. Do you take that philosophy and everything? I'm not going to worry. Because let me preface that, is that you... Let me stop you right okay, there. Sure. What are my choices? 
I'm afraid of bears. Try and arm myself to the gills to feel better while I'm in the bush. Most people will tell you when you're in the bush, you're not going to get a shot off on a bear if you're in a certain amount of timber, willows, alder, whatever. It's a false sense of security. The other option is to stop going into the bush. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to keep going into the bush. And if I die from a grizzly bear, that's cool. And it's better than dying in an old folks home at the age of 93 crapping myself. <laughs> so if I die from a grizzly bear, that's, that's okay. It's not super okay. Like I don't really want it to happen, but I'm not, I'm not going to alter my lifestyle based on that fear. So I'm just kind of aware, try to be cautious, be safe, you know, don't make stupid decisions, you know? that's like a good starting point don't place yourself into dangerous situations know that they're there you know whatever it is what it is they're out there we're going to be out there i don't think most of them want to tangle with you oh maybe you maybe i'm pretty sure they don't they'll be fine tangling with me but i you are you are touching you didn't answer my question about mm. the philosophy but you're touching on it now it's like you see you're not afraid you have always chosen to live very well you know, from the time that you m moved to Ireland to traveling the world, you know, you're not just nest nestled up in, in Prince George in your lake house cabin, you know, and never leaving it. Not that, that there's anything wrong with that, but you've really chosen to step into life. And that's why I'm curious about your life philosophy, because you did this from a young age. You've always jumped and, and learned and been very successful you're very successful. Yeah. So I would say I learned a lot of that from my dad. Now, I think if you were to ask my dad, if he was sitting here, I would say the same thing. He didn't think things through as well as I did. Like he was all about living life for the moment and doing what you want to do and following your passions and stuff. He just didn't plan for the future. He didn't, you know, like very well. Whereas I feel like I've done a little bit better of a job of that. But yes, absolutely. I love traveling. I think a person should travel if you've ever thought about it. My a, a big philosophy, a couple of things that I would say is like, and I wouldn't be the first person to say it, not by a long shot, but I would, on my deathbed, I, I would regret all of the things that I didn't do. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. There's things that I want to do. I'm going to do them. I'm going to travel. I want to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable because that's where you grow. So it's like, you know, you're talking about hunting. You're talking about traveling. You're talking about going to places where they don't speak English. It's uncomfortable when you can't communicate with people for what you need. You know, even not following a regular job, you know, doing my contracting thing. And it's just kind of like really out there in a lot of different things. So it's like, to me, I think it's like be comfortable with being uncomfortable do the things that you say you want to do because you know what you might screw up but things that you screw up can be fixed but not doing things out of fear is where you're definitely going to look back on your life and regret having not oh i always wanted to go to this place but why didn't you what like literally what stopped you from actually going and doing that thing you definitely should go do that thing you know it's talking about skydiving doing things like that you know and then an another thing is like I have a, a lot of friends that follow a lot of different paths in life. Some people are very budget focused and they are really conservative and some people just spend all their money. And it's like, I'm like, I don't really care. Like I don't judge people based off of how they want to live their life. To me, my metric for success is happiness. It's not financial gain. It's not what you possess. It's like, if you're, if you're happy doing life the way that you're doing it, then you're winning. So with your philosophy, how do you approach your days individually, your routine, 
with a great deal of stress. <laughs> then how do you deal with that stress? I mean, walk me through it. Walk it's me through it's always day. the trade-off. You're an entrepreneur and you know how it is. It's like there are many days when I'm just like looking at somebody that's got a nine to five job and I'm just kind of like, oh, they just leave all of their stress on the job site when they go home. But it's all about risk reward. You know, I take on a lot more stress. I think I need to learn how to manage it a little bit better. And I think the biggest problem at this point in time in my life is I'm finishing building my house while also running my business, while we're also doing Finding Nowhere. And it's like, I just have so many irons in the fire right now. Finishing off the house will be a massive, like I, I can just take all that time and energy and put it into my business. And you're and, doing most of it yourself? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm fussy and I can. It would seem silly to pay somebody to come in and do stuff that I'm capable of doing on so, my so own. So you're putting in big hours. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like a lot right now. Like every weekend. It's plus, like plus, plus like, evenings. Yeah. Like you're up at five and yeah. go until 10. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets exhausting, but I think, yeah. Well, I mean, what's your diet? Like, how how are you sustaining that? Because I, I I would be a, I I wouldn't be sustaining it personally. Uh, moose and elk give me superpowers. Talk to my wife about it. I say it at home, drives her nuts. She thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> I say that I get all of my energy from eating moose heart because I kept all of the hearts out of all the animals that we harvested last year: the mountain goat, elk, moose. Uh, my buddy Dan brought two white tail hearts back. And then uh, my friend Rob brought mm. back a mule deer heart for me as well. And I got gout from <laughs> eating like way too much red meat and organ meat. And it hurt. And Dana was like, you need to back off. And then I backed off and then I got like really tired. And I was like, I'm telling you, it's like all this wild game. It's like, that's why I'm fit. That's why I'm strong. And that's why I have all this energy. And I'm just going to, I'll take the gout as it comes and I'll just keep <laughs> eating that way. So I, I eat a lot of red meat and seems to work well for me. Yeah, you do. Vegetables. We don't eat a ton of processed foods. And I mean, we go through waves, you know, you just feel overwhelmed and you start eating easy meals and they're never that good for you. And it was like just the other day, you know, um, Aaron had given me some mule deer and I was like, oh, I should eat that up and just fried up a bunch and had it for lunch for a couple of days in a row and it feels good. It's a mm -hmm. lot better than a Wendy's burger, I'll tell you that much. So That's good, true. good diet. It's true. Like, you know, you hear about it all the time. You hear about, you know, if you're watch Rogan or any of these guys, Cam Haynes, you know, it just, they, they swear by it to such a degree that you're like, no, 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 that can't be, can, how can it be that degree? And then it's like, no, my own cousin tells me, no, it's that degree. This is exactly how I, I, I think it's legitimate. Unbiased. You didn't yeah. come to it through that. You were been a hunter for 20 years and you've actually increased that in your diet, right? Mm -hmm. And what are you working out every day these days or not? Uh, not for the last two months, but you typically, yeah, I try to get up at four thirty and get everything, you know, finish up around six thirty after eating good breakfast and taking my greens and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it feels good when I'm in the middle of it. Like, honestly, never feel better. Like pre-making my lunches, getting up, having a good breakfast, working out. Um, I actually feel focused and energized, like in a whole different level. Um, I just started to wane as the summer hours got longer and I had bigger projects to focus on and physically, you know, demanding projects. I just was like, oh, I don't have the energy for this, but I'll get back into it. I mean, it's just everything is kind of like, you know, your ebb and flow. And mm -hmm. it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll get back there right away. I'm just getting some major projects off of my plate. And even my wife thinks I'm like insane. She's like, oh, I cannot imagine that you get up at 430 in the morning. And I'm like, it's 
the only time that I have. Like it is so hard to find time for myself because having three kids, I had them on purpose. So I spend time with them because I don't want them growing up without me. So it's like as much as we do all of these other things, it's still super important to have that focused family time. So Sundays are family days. Evenings I come home, I hang out with the kids till they go to bed. It's hard to motivate yourself at 830 at night to start getting productive again. Yeah. So and I'm not going to work out at 830 and then try to go to bed all wired. So it's like I work out in the morning and get energized. And it's one of those things that I'm just kind of like I've gotten to the point where there are certain things. It's like you can research the crap out of them and you'll get so much information that's conflicting. Oh, is it better to work out in the morning? Better to work out? Oh, you should do it exactly this many minutes after you eat. And I'm kind of like, okay, you know what? Like I'm not a professional whatever fitness influencer i don't have the luxury of working out at 11 o'clock precisely an hour and 15 minutes after i ate a freaking stupid high carb whatever like i'm gonna get up in the morning this is when i have my chance i'm gonna do it It works for me so that's what i do (laughs) (laughs) well you do it well and the thing that's really interesting and envious which i have a little bit more of now contrasting my life in the city which i loved we loved we loved the convenience of being able to walk down the stairs out our front door and have 10 amazing little restaurants and coffee shops right there. I miss that living out in the wilderness. But this idea that when you go out onto your farm, you go out where you're building your house, and you're using your body so much more of the day in not just walking, lifting, moving things from A to B, digging a hole, turning the compost, you feel I healthier, I don't know how else to put it. And, and maybe that's just obvious and it's like, well, thanks, thanks, genius. But I think that it's it's also forgotten because most of us roll out of bed, slide into the car, you know, pre-COVID, whatever, more people were commuting. Maybe that goes back, I don't know. But like you slide into your comfy chair, you come home, you sit down for dinner, you're just sitting all day. And I, I think it's killing us. <laughs> Yeah, I think lack of physical exercise is obviously a huge thing, but I also like having like that kind of direct correlation between what you're doing in the day and seeing the results of it. Mm. You know, most people, they have a job, so they go do one thing and they might be good at it. They might suck at it too, but they do one thing and then you have money and you go pay other people to provide all of your needs. Whereas I think, you know, you think about going out to the trap line, it's like when we're out there hunting and you want to stay warm. You better go cut some firewood. Mm-hmm. You're not paying somebody to keep it warm. You know, it's like you want to eat, go forage, go shoot your moose. You know, it's like you want the roof to work properly, fix it. You know, it's like you see all of these direct correlations between what you're spending your time doing and how it directly affects your daily life. You know, so and, and I think it is satisfying and I think that's important and it energizes a person a little bit more than doing a mundane thing that it's kind of like, oh, it's sucking the life out of me. And it's like you, you crave the weekends and you crave the evenings and it's just such like a small amount of time where you're really living your best life in between when you can manage to do it. Mm. You're scratching that thing that I called instinctual before, but, you know, didn't really put words to it is like, there's something about learning how to do these things that creates a fulfilling life in a way that is counterintuitive to most of society in the Western world today, Uh, not 99% of it, where, yeah, you just, you work something to pay the bills to do the things that you otherwise could do yourself in a different situation in a different way. Mm -hmm. I know lots of friends who are trying to find their way back to that, like I think I've said, and and that brings us kind of full circle to, you know, we talked about finding nowhere, and that's like 
essentially what we're trying to do with this project is, of course, the audience has no context of it. They haven't seen an, ep- an episode or anything we film, but that's what you've invited me to do is mm-hmm. ha- if you're going to do it, live, learn to live off the land, learn to forge, learn to hunt, learn to build, learn to, you know, oyster, etc. Then you really like the oyster thing. You keep coming back to that. I feel like we're going to have to manifest <laughs> an oyster. <laughs> I like, I heard about it. I know I keep bringing it up. I I saw it on somebody else's rewilding thing. I know somebody that can take us out. Yeah. And I just, the seafood part of it is so fascinating to me. It's mm-hmm. like. Oh, it is so good. <sighs> seafood, that is like my biggest regret about living in Prince George is not mm-hmm. being closer to the coast. I'm telling you, I would have a nice fishing boat and I would have a lot of seafood in my freezer. Scallops, yes. shrimps, the, the yes. fish themselves, like the prawns, clams, prawns, like. Bottom fish, man. Cod. So good. Halibut, salmon, like clams, you can go clam digging, like all of it. And these are the things that when you go to a restaurant, they're obscenely expensive. It's like the luxury of the luxuries, yet it's still of the earth. Mm -hmm. It's still something that you can go and you can have. Now, of course, I'm the type of guy that's going to try and pair a nice white wine to it or... You know, Prosecco or something like that. But that's but, the beautiful thing about the mix too. It's like even myself, I'm I'm not fully naive in the sense that like I want to go full bush. Like I'm just gonna full bush. Yeah, I know that doesn't sound good. <laughs> edit that part out. Go like full I'm bush man. That shit out. Full bush man. Like it, it's like there. I I do like traveling and I like certain comforts and different things like that. And it's kind of like, you know. Figuring, finding that balance. I know he, yeah, of where you're going to be the happiest. You know, it's like I, I get a kick out of it because you look at these guys that are like these uh, high level hunters, and they're like doing all of these crazy things. And then I'm just like looking at their gear, going like, well, you have like twenty thousand dollars worth of stuff in your backpack. It's like you're not that earthy, mm-hmm. you know, myself included. I'm not pointing the finger. It's kind of like mm-hmm. you you don't get to be that comfortable in the bush without having some money. Yeah, you're not wearing throw blue, blue jeans it. and a yeah. So how pure is this? It's like you you have to look at it through that lens too and say, I dig what you're doing. And believe me, I do. That's like my goal. But I still like to be comfortable doing it. I like my nice expensive rain gear and my good hiking boots and my good backpack because everybody is spending tons of money to buy lightweight gear that's really well made. The end goal, comfort. Mm -hmm. You want to be as comfortable as you possibly can packed into the smallest bag that you possibly can do it, right? So, I mean, there's still, of course, you're out there working your butt off and you're super uncomfortable, but it's like you're still relying on a lot of different facets of society to make it easy mm-hmm. for you to do that. And it does. It makes it easier today. And, you know, because I, I would literally die in the woods without any of those things. I, I literally went hypothermic the first time you took me out or one of the t- first times and, and it pissed with rain. And as we ascended elevation, you know, if I was moving, I was fine, but I was wearing... 100% cotton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your gear was crap. Yeah, well, I couldn't afford the, the that good was, stuff. That was not good gear, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that that's when you get a little bit scared and you're like, well, this went sideways. I go sideways real fast, real hard. <laughs> yeah, even, like, no, it's true. It, it's actually kind of good sometimes when you get into that situation and it's a really good, healthy reminder that you are messing around way out in the bush too like even just this last winter i took eli and seth we went out to the trap line those are our cousins yes cousins pretty solid dudes you know 
Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Mostly Eli. Seth, we're still trying to figure it out. Seth is the direct, uh, is the filmer for Finding Nowhere, so. <laughs> yeah, editor, videographer. We're allowed to make fun of him. Yeah, but, you know, it's like we, we snowmobiled in for like a few hours. We had to cut branches to get into where we wanted to go and then we had to hike to the cabin and now i've taken you there before and you thought it was hard that time we had like two feet of fresh snow followed by rain it was like the heaviest we you know we got to this point where we'd been snowshoeing for like three and a half hours it was dark and we were wet Mm -hmm. and we were still only halfway to the cabin and i just kind of had this mini like anxious moment where I was like, oh, man, we're so far away. Like, we're wet. Like, if, if the temperature drops, like, this could be bad. Like, we need to get warm and dry. And, you know, I again, I knew we weren't going to die. But I just had that moment's realization that it was like, sometimes you're doing silly things way out in the bush. And you're like, there are things that you have to be aware of. And we had good gear. And we still got soaking wet. It was so warm out. And it was raining. Mm -hmm. And then the sun goes down. And then it drops below zero. And then you're starting to crust over. And, you know, then it's like you get to the cabin. And it's like you still have to dig the chimney out. And you still got to get that fire going. And you're hugging the chimney while it's warming up. And, you know, Seth was so cold he didn't want to take his gear off and he just hunkered around i took all my wet gear off right away got into dry gear wrapped myself in a blanket there's an interesting psychology where or the psychology of how some of us get stuck frozen not literally to the story you were just describing but this this kind of happens to me a lot out there is i i can't continue in action to do the things that i need to do take Seth for instance should be taking off his wet frozen clothes because that's not helping him it's hindering him but is stuck you know but you always have this shift where you're able to just keep stepping into the thing that you need to do the correct thing in the situation keep moving towards the truck to to borrow the example from when we were in the devil's club you know well as long as you're still thinking clearly it's like you can logically follow the steps and see the outcome Hmm. And it's like, I know that it's like, if I get out of my wet gear, I'm going to warm up 10 times faster. And I did. I felt great. It was hard because you have to strip down naked and it was colder in the cabin than it was outside at that point in time, strange as that might sound. And it's like, you have these very uncomfortable moments, whereas, you know, sitting around and you're in your wet gear, but you're just kind of like, okay, you're just kind of clinging on. Mm -hmm. Whereas all of a sudden I was like, warm, dry, comfortable. And then two hours later, Seth finally changed out. And then he was like, I should have done this two hours ago. And I was like... I told you to do that two hours ago. Mm. It's like, I know (laughs) that's what you should have done, you know, and it's the same thing with pushing on towards the truck and all that kind of stuff. It's like, and that, and that goes back to your, you're able to tap, you, you mentioned get knowledgeable, learn, learn from people, learn by doing it. And that's, you have that knowledge. So you don't have that fear because you're able to tap into, okay, this is what is the situation. And it does, I don't need to blow it out of proportion as to what it is, even if what it is sucks. Mm-hmm. You're good at that. That's a compliment Thank for you. you. You know, and, and that's part of the reason why I hunt with you. <laughs> it just feels safer. Yeah. <laughs> I just exude false confidence for you when I need to. And when I know that that's what you need, I'm just going to be like, we're going to be fine, Joel. <laughs> well, you're and dying like, inside. We're not going to be fine. <laughs> we might not be fine. But we're going to be fine. But we might die. I just take it. I'm like... <laughs> Oh, okay. Right, so it'll be fine. You need it. I do. I do. And, you know, and, and just to, you know, we're going to wrap up here and do another one 
sometime or maybe lots, you know, who knows, but you know, I was thinking about it and we were talking about it earlier because we were in the studio for something else before this. And I was thinking about how, you know, you told me once we were on the mountain, how hard it is to take an animal's life. And I was, I was in tears the first time and second time, not in tears necessarily, but very shaken and how it changes your perspective on the value of that thing that you're about to eat and how because you depend on it you actually you want there to be balance in it you know do you do you think about that often or is that just because i'm so new to it that i i really am tapped into that life death balance that comes with hunting that's very raw i you're probably a little bit more heightened to it obviously like i've harvested a pretty decent amount of animals now mostly moose i i mean i primarily hunted moose but i've actually been really successful with elk done pretty good with goats uh you know not doing too bad with bear and and deer either but the there's always a sadness that accompanies the successful hunt that it has never really lost me like i you know it's like i felt that even with the bears and a lot of people are just kind of like ah bears who cares they're just garbage and i'm like well it's still an animal you know and it was and it was doing its own thing up until that moment that you took its life so of course you know the animal doesn't suffer very long i i honestly believe that any animal that meets its end from the end of a rifle is going to actually meet its best end because the other options are usually starvation or, you know, it falls off a cliff, breaks a leg, which leads to starvation, or trauma, rip. ripped apart by wild animals. Like, honestly, like those animals are going to see their best end, you know, from a bullet. But it's still a sad thing. I'm always sad because you take a beautiful animal like, the, you know, that elk that I got last year. Oh, man, I couldn't have been happier. Yeah, it was a beautiful trophy lots of meat for the freezer but i'm still sad because i'm like ah, oh, that dude's not running around out there in the bush anymore and he was a nice addition to the bush when you um when i was having dinner with you and your family once you you wouldn't let your kids waste the meat like you know kids are all our kids do this it's like they, we, you were having tacos i think elk, elk tacos and they're gonna throw away one of their leftover elk tacos and you're like you do not waste that like that is either coming to me or it's going to be put back in the fridge we do not waste this meat yeah and that's I, that, that's a respect yeah for, for the animal it's like i always say to anybody i'm like an animal actually died for you to have this meal and we're not going to throw it in the garbage because i can't fathom shooting an animal and throwing it in the garbage even if it's a small portion of it sometimes it happens but as as a general rule mm -hmm. it's like you can throw away your potatoes mm -hmm. Or that piece of bread, but not. Piece I of said I, I took bread. that animal out of the bush, so we're gonna eat it. Yeah, and 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 I want to. I don't know if this happens, but I, you know, like I grew up with completely sheltered from death. So the first time somebody died in my life, which was really my one of my best friends, and it was incredibly hard, which it would have been anyway. I had no contextual understanding of what it felt like to see life leave. And having experienced that now, point being is I, I, I want my kids to have an understanding of death in the balance of life and death and not be, to what degree it makes sense, to what degree it doesn't give them nightmares, to what degree <laughs> that like they can handle that information. I think it makes a stronger person mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, well, that doesn't happen. Yeah. 
it fucking happens. Yeah. <laughs> right? And you need to cope with it. And you need to cope with it. And and I've had through those two hunting experiences, it's it's actually brought me closer to to learning how to cope with it. Mm. You know, not in the same way that fit your grandma, but yeah. cousin, I'm grateful for your you flying down and, and doing this and uh I wanted to just because we've kind of gone all over, rambled all over is that's the name of the podcast. But um is there anything that like you want to share that you haven't that I didn't ask you that you might be wanting me to? You know what? One thing that we didn't really touch on is not not a lot is like your family's involvement in this whole rewilding journey. You know, I think that we could give a lot of credit and recognition to like our wives because <laughs> we spend a bit of time in the bush, right? And they're the ones sitting at home with the kids, you know. Yes, they do get fruits of our labor. You know, you're, you are putting meat in the freezer, but at the same time, it's like, I think if you are a man who's lucky enough to have a wife that supports you in that hunting, it's going to make everything so much better. Or a, or a w- woman with a man that supports her in her hunting. Yes, that's right. Either way. There's, yeah. There's, that's right. Well, I mean, my, my I supported my wife to harvest her moose last year. She was right? And she was there right for me when I got my elk. Mm-hmm. So I think recognizing, you know, how much effort it takes, not just for us to go out into the bush and do that, but there's like always the behind the scenes thing in everything that's involved with like making your rewilding experience become a reality and having a good partner by your side that's going to support you and actually join you on that journey. That's the best thing Mm. because I know for years, like when my wife and I, we got together, we lived like close to the brewery in town and it was a half acre lot kind of on a green belt. And she was like, this is the furthest in the bush I ever want to live. And I was like, we are in town. (laughs) We are in town. And now she's like, I want to live in the country. I need to grow a garden. Like she's dying because we haven't had a garden for two years. And you know, like a couple of years ago I shot a black bear and she was like, why'd you shoot a black bear? And I was like, cause I was black bear hunting. Like that's what I was always going to happen. And she was like, okay, well we have moose and elk and I don't want to eat any black bear. It was like six months later. She's like, black bear is great. I should never have complained about it like you just have this idea in your head about it and um so she's on board with like all of those things you know it's like she doesn't want to live in a cabin like full time but you know doing those adventures and doing the hunting and the fishing and growing the garden and getting out and foraging and actually like tackling the aspect of like preservation you know, it's all work and you know, it's too easy. I think, you know, especially in our society, it's like everything that you do, you can equate to a dollar figure attached to what your time is worth. You know, it's like as a contractor, I can go out and make a hundred dollars an hour, $150 an hour. Why would I waste my time doing that? Because I could just make more money and pay somebody, but that falls back into the whole thing. Like, I don't want to do this one thing and then pay other people to do everything else for me. There's just something so much more satisfying, you know, even I have a small sawmill. It's like, I haven't even set it up yet, but it's like, I maybe could just go work and then buy my lumber. It's going to be satisfying on a whole different level if I just mill up what I need. And, you know, we, we recently learned how to start foraging for, you know, fiddleheads and devil's club and stinging nettle and false Solomon seal and all of those things. And it's like, it's great because there's a lot of it out there where we go, but it's like, okay, you can only eat so much fresh. Now there's more work involved. And that even feeds back into the whole, like, your lifestyle you know you want to live in a cabin you need to harvest your food you need to preserve your food it's real work you're not going to do it all on your own you got to get your wife 
or your partner to help out. And if you have one that's excited about that because you're like, oh, wow, I'm living off the land. Well, that's like the icing on the cake, really. So recognition for all the partners out there that support here, here. the men or women who are out doing that kind of thing. So you were, um, you know, outside of Finding Nowhere when that site will be live when this goes live, findingnowhere.com, I'm sure. Do you want people to follow you, Instagram or check you out anywhere? I mean, sure. Why not? Was that at Moose Life Balance? Yeah, at Moose Life Balance. Underscores yeah. in there? I don't think so. No? Okay. I'll have to ask my wife. She handles all my social media. <laughs> we'll, 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 put it into the, uh, we'll put it into the show notes so that they can check out your your northern style life of all the things that we talked about. And you and I will um, we'll do this again and we'll have lots of new adventures to share from our- oh, yeah. Lots of good stories stuff about out there. still waiting to happen. Yeah. yeah. Probably this year. I'm, I'm thinking just over a month. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Let's go. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Bye. Okay. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my self and of course my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through you know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show and so i'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through you know we don't have ads on the show i think i don't think red circles running ads but i wanted to take just a quick second to say that hey if the spirit moves you you know this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and, and I'd love for you to check them out. You know, one is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book and you can get it anywhere where books are sold online like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, your, that's your Shark Tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup needs some motivation, needs some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful and inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.